Well, whose voice is most important to you? The who, if, if your life was unraveling, who would you call? Who would you make uh, a reservation for, invite them to dinner, sit down across from them and, and lay out your heart before them? Whose voice is most important to you? Is it the voice of another person? Or just in general, the voice of, of other people? That what, what drives your life is what, what other people are saying about you or what other people think about you? Or is the most important voice uh, your voice? That if life was beginning to unravel, to spin in a direction you didn't want it to go, that there actually wouldn't be someone across the dinner table from you. It would just be you by yourself thinking it out, uh, playing it out in your mind, thinking to yourself, talking to yourself, wrestling with yourself. Whose voice is most important to you? Is it others? Is it your voice? Or is it the voice of God? Is his voice most important? And I realized I just pulled a lame pastor move there. We all know what the right answer is, right? It's God's voice, of course. Um, and I know, I know that. I know his words should define my reality. His words should define what is most important to me. But at least in my own world, too often what other people are saying and doing are most important. Or I get out on a long drive and by myself in my car and my voice is most important. And this morning I just want to reflect on a question, which is how... How do we begin to, to move away from that and move into a place where God's voice is the most important voice in our life? And what I want to do, I want to give you the answer, and then I want to work it out through the text. The answer is, is prayer. Prayer is where you make God's voice most important. And I would, I would say, if you want to know how important God's voice is to your own life, the best way to answer that question is to look at your prayer life. And if you look at Jeremiah's prayer life, which we get a lot of glimpses into his prayer life, both through the book of Jeremiah as well as the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah most likely wrote, you would know he's wrestling through these very same questions. Whose voice is most important? And to take a step back, for, even from that for a minute, we're spending eight weeks looking at the prophet Jeremiah's life. And, and, and through the, this lens, this idea that Jeremiah was given a life he did not want to have, a life he couldn't. Uh, live a life that included suffering and pain, things he would never have chosen for himself that God has chosen for him. And Jeremiah has this choice, shrink back from this enlarged, bigger, riskier, stronger, more courageous life that God has called him to, or step back into a shrunken life and live like everybody else. It's a life of salvation, a harder life, a, a riskier life, or it's a life like everyone else. That's a choice Jeremiah has. And meditating on this prayer of Jeremiah this week, which is a good sort of, of look at how he prays throughout his life, this question kept coming back to me. Whose voice is most important to me? And so in asking that question, especially through the lens of prayer, when God's voice becomes most important to me, when I pray, kind of three things happen. I hold nothing back. God takes my worst. And then gives me his best. Sounds like a good sermon, so I'm going to preach it. Um, first, uh, when you make God's voice most important, when you pray, you hold nothing back. I hold nothing back. And Jeremiah, as I said, he's been given a life that he doesn't want. And I can promise you, at some point in your life, God is going to put something into your life that you do not want. He's going to make you walk through something that you do not want to walk through. And Jeremiah's response to this is, is to pray. A lot. 
Jeremiah's prayers are recorded throughout the book of Jeremiah, the, the book of Lamentations I mentioned a second ago. And in a number of different times, Jeremiah reaches this breaking point. And, and in particular, when he gets to a breaking point, it's because there are a lot of voices telling him things and saying things to him. People who want to harm him. People who tell him he's a false prophet. People who tell him he is a liar. People who are trying to kill him. And so in those moments, when everything's unraveling, Jeremiah sits down with God as if, as if out to dinner across the table, and, and he prays. And as he prays, he holds nothing back. And if you get into that place where God has put something into your life you do not want, you have to be able to do this. You have to be able to pray holding nothing back. And so what I want to do, I want to walk through this prayer, what Jeremiah says to God, his honesty, um, which with he approaches God. So kind of one verse at a time, what Jeremiah is praying out. And first in ver verse 15, Jeremiah prays, prays his fear. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me. Take vengeance on me for, my for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Now what Jeremiah prays there is, is he says to God, God, you're, people are trying to kill me. And they're trying to kill me because I'm saying and doing what you have told me to say and do. Will you not be so patient with these people that they get to me, that they kill me? Will you show me a little bit of your grace? You're so patient with them, these people who have no interest in your word or your, your, your speech. But, but me, the one who's speaking on behalf of you, you don't act. Don't be so patient with them that you forget about me, he prays. And next, in verses 16 through 18, uh, Jeremiah, he doesn't just pray out his fear. He prays out his loneliness. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me. What he prays there is, he, he says, God, it's, it's not just these people want to attack me, but I'm... I'm alone. You are all I have, right? Because you've given me this message, which was he was uh, to, to the rest, for the rest of his life to announce to everyone in his city and in his family, amongst his friends, that Jerusalem was one day going to be destroyed. And the result was a lot of people hated him for this. He had no friends. He, had no, he wasn't able to get married or have a wife. God had told him to sort of withdraw from the community because of this prophecy. And so he prays out, God, I'm alone. You are all I have, and you're ignoring me. He prays out his loneliness. Prays out his fear. He also prays out his pain. Verse 18. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? And throughout Jeremiah's life, his, his pain grew, his, his hurt increased. And so he, he basically prays out here, God, I'm, I'm bleeding out. Will you come and heal me? And when he, as he goes to the last line of, of the prayer, it's, it's been an escalation up to this moment where God, Jeremiah's final question to God is a question of anger. And what he asks God is this, will you be to me a deceitful brook like waters that fail? I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. Uh, he, he says this, you're nothing, God, but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance and then Nothing. But essentially, Jeremiah prays to God there, I, I'm thirsty, and then I look to you and I see a stream off in the, the distance, and when I get there, it's empty. There's nothing there. When I read that prayer, I wonder, have you ever, 
Have you ever prayed anything like that to God? I know everyone in here has probably thought it, but have you prayed it? I think it's hard for us to pray with this kind of honesty. It's hard to pray holding nothing back. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm 34. I've been in the church my entire life. I've, I've almost never heard a Christian pray like Jeremiah prays. And I think there's a few reasons for that. Why? For whatever reasons in our cultural context, we do not pray holding nothing back. Let me give you three quick reasons why I think that's the case. The first one being that we, I think we misunderstand prayer. We misunderstand what it is. Let's go back to that illustration uh, or the image of, of being out to dinner with someone you trust, you need, you're pouring your heart out to them. I think oftentimes uh, we don't treat, we don't put God in the chair across from us. Like he's not the intimate dinner party with which we're, we're sharing our concerns. We treat him more like, like the waiter. Eugene Peterson describes this, this, this kind of reality like this. He says, this waiter God is essential but peripheral. You can't have dinner without him, but he's not an intimate participant in it. He is, not, he is someone to whom you give orders, make complaints, and maybe at the end give thanks. I don't know about you, but I think my biggest prayer, problem with prayer is that I treat it as transactional. I, right, the, the old line that I heard growing up in church, you pray and then you get three answers, yes, no, or wait. And listen, this is certainly an aspect of prayer, um, but if this is what we see as the primary aim of prayer, we've misunderstood what prayer is about. The prayer, as God designs it, prayer as Jeremiah prays it, is to go to God, to be with God, to make his voice most important. Prayer is about relational intimacy with God. And though prayer may always in some way start as God is the waiter with with whom we're, we're making requests, we're asking things of ultimately we want to move God out of that position into the table across from us, the one we need to hear, hear from and be with and listen to. And as long as we think of God primarily as transactional, primarily as I pray for him to do, we will not pray holding nothing back because you need to get something, right? You don't just tell off your waiter because you know what will happen to your food if you do that. But that person across the table from you, you'll say anything to. That's what Jeremiah does with God here. So I think the reason why it's often hard for us to pray holding nothing back is because we misunderstand prayer. We, we make God our waiter and not our friend. We make prayer about getting something instead of being with someone. So that's one reason why I think it's hard to pray this way. The other is, a second is that I think we're afraid to be real. And one of my favorite lines from C.S. Lewis when he was talking about prayer, um, or just even kind of our life before God, he, he says this, says, we must lay before him, lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And I think we, so much of us, we're, we're really good at like showing other people what we want them to see about us, what we think they ought, what, what they think uh, we want them to see, what they ought to see, right? This is, what's, this is the whole point of social media, is curate our, ourselves for others. We have to do this at work, right? So we look like we're doing a good job. But nothing undermines personal relationship like dishonesty, and the real problem here is that God, unlike other human beings with whom we actually can conceal ourselves and present a certain image with which they see and believe, with God you can't do that. He sees past. You can't sanitize yourself, clean up your act, and present an image to God. He already knows everything you're thinking. He already knows what it is that you think about him, your frustrations with him. And so put them on the table. Be real. Hold nothing back. He already knows what it is anyway. You don't, have to, you don't have to pray as a, a very holy, righteous, good person when you know you're not. God knows you're not. 
and he still wants you to come anyway. So it's hard for us to pray, pray holding nothing back because we, on the one hand, we misunderstand what prayer is. We make God into our waiter. Two, we're, we're afraid to, to be real. Um, but third, and I think this is the biggest reason, is real, real prayer hurts. That we come to God, we give him our hurts, our pain, our loneliness, our fear, our anger. And sometimes nothing happens. Actually, a lot of times, nothing happens. There's just silence. But in your own life, what have you prayed for? And then nothing. This question brings me back to first grade, where uh, I met my first atheist. I'm sitting at the first grade lunch table. Her name was Ashley. And, uh, and I grew up in church, so I just sort of assumed everybody's a Christian. And I remember her just kind of defiantly saying, I do not believe in God. I was like, that's crazy. Why not? And she, she gave a very compelling reason for why uh, she doesn't believe in God. She said that she had prayed for a long time for the Nintendo game Paperboy, and God never brought it to her. Help was denied. Um, and as a first grader, that's a pretty powerful argument. Now, I realize some of you kids, you've got upgraded video games. You think uh, your games are much uh, better than ours. Paperboy was actually, this was the game. Um, you, uh, you had a newspaper, and you tried to get it into people's uh, mailboxes or, uh, or f- like their front porch without breaking any windows. Like, like a real job. That was our video game. So I, my childhood, I'm still recovering from this. But, but like that was actually, I mean, for a first grader, that's a compelling question. Why wouldn't God give this video game? Like why, this would be fun. This would make her believe in God. Why wouldn't God do this? I felt at, as a first grader the weight of her argument. And now at 34, the stakes are higher. And her argument is more powerful. Because now I'm not praying at this stage in my life for a video game. I'm praying for a child. I'm not praying for some light entertainment, but salvation. I'm not praying for, to be saved from a bored afternoon. I'm praying to be delivered from the awful consequences of death. And to pray like that before God, real prayer hurts. Because you go again and again and again, and and oftentimes, nothing. Which is why it's important not to make God into your waiter, because that would be a very bad waiter. And yet this pain, this, this reality of laying out your entire life before God, being vulnerable before Him and asking and pleading with Him, and Him not responding in any way, is hard. It hurts. And so Francis Bufford, uh, reflecting on this reality, he points out that it's actually harder to believe in God in light of the problem of evil, the light of, of silence and prayer, than it is to just go and be an atheist. And he has a, a curse word in this uh, quote. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to replace it with expletive just so in case you Google this later so you're not surprised. Um, but I, I think this is a powerful argument. He's quoting an atheist um, here for, for why. But this quote has been has stuck with me. Here's what he says about this reality of real prayer, real, real prayer hurting. He says, you ask for help. And you get nothing. On a conscious level, you may have decided that there was nobody there to help. But less consciously, since you did ask, it feels as if help was denied. Hence the angry edge that sometimes sharpens disbelief when it's been renewed by one of those episodes of fruitless asking. In the words of Samuel Beckett, he, God, doesn't exist, the expletive. The life of faith has just as many of these moments. Probably more of them 
If anything, given that we believers tend to return to the subject more often, producing many more opportunities to be disappointed. Then in prayer, you have to go again and again to the one who's denying your help. It's why I'm far more comfortable sitting across from an atheist, having a philosophical decision about, or discussion about the problem of evil and why I think that's a good reason for why God exists, not a bad reason. It's much easier to do that than to go to God with your problem of evil. Because prayer is harder. That's why Eugene Peterson has this great line um, in his book on Jeremiah where he says, Believers argue with God. Skeptics argue with each other. And what I would say is if you go into the Bible and you begin to, to read the prayers in the Bible, you'll find there is, no, there is nothing any atheist has ever said that was not first prayed by someone in the Bible to God. Someone whose help, who, to, to whom help was denied. Someone who prayed it all out, held nothing back from a position of faith. It's much easier to argue the existence of God. It's much easier for us as Christians to argue the existence of God than to take our pain to him and pray to him. And this is why prayer, it's, it's actually a dangerous thing. I mean, on the one hand, I, I mean when I say I, prayer is where you make God's voice most important to you, but prayer is also this dangerous tool because prayer could actually end up harming you in the end. That if you think you, are, are, you can go to God and prayer is going to be a place where the tension is relieved and God just gives you answers. He's more weighter than, than, than personal relationship you're sitting across from. Prayer is going to hurt you. Because in prayer, we take everything we care most in life about, the things we're most vulnerable about, the things we, we care most about, and we, we put them on the table before God, and we let His voice be most important. And sometimes His voice is silence. And that's why if you go to prayer for anything other than relational intimacy, to know Him and to be known by Him, prayer can end up harming you in the end. So point one, you can know God's voice is most important to you when you're praying, holding nothing back. Prayer is where we make God's voice most important, and we hold nothing back. We lay it out before him. So maybe you're wondering, okay, well, Jeremiah says some pretty hard things about God. He'll actually say harder things at other times. So how does God respond? Well, point one, uh, in prayer, we hold nothing back. But two, uh, in prayer, a real life of prayer, God takes our worst. The God, the Jeremiah, he's held nothing back. He's accused God of being a deceitful brook. And now it's time for God to respond. And God does not pray, say back to Jeremiah, how dare you? You can't say these things. These things are off limits. No, what he, what he says and said in, in verse 19, the first thing he says to Jeremiah is, if you return, I will restore you. Now, what, what God is saying there is he's saying, Jeremiah, if you don't give up on me, I haven't given up on you. God invites Jeremiah into restoration, to healing from his place of pain, so that, that's God's first response. And so, if you're if you're someone who's sitting there thinking, I can't just say anything to God, you need to see what's happened here with Jeremiah and God. That when, when Jeremiah does lay it out, God's re- first response is, Jeremiah, come for healing. If you keep coming to me, I'm going to keep coming to you. Don't give up on me, Jeremiah. That is his first response to God. But that's not all that God is going to say to Jeremiah. It's, it's important we hear that first, right? God receives his worst, but that's not all that, Jer- that God will say. To Jeremiah, And here might be what, I, what might be a fourth reason why I think real, real prayer is hard, why it's hard for us to hold nothing back in prayers. Because I think once I lay my, my honesty out before God, once I pray my honesty out, once I lay it all out before him, 
God is not going to let me stay where I am. He's not going to let me build a self uh, fortress around my self-pity so that he and I can live there together and think about how sad things are. That's not going to happen. No, we lay ourselves out before God and he scrapes us off the floor, stands us up, fills our breath with lungs and strengthens us for a redeemed life. And I think sometimes that's why I hold back is I know if I put it out on the table, I'm going to have to stand back up. Sometimes I'd just rather keep laying down. Remember what we've said about the point of this series, what we've been trying to say about salvation and life with God. The salvation, it's about God equipping us to live a life that we could not live on our own. Redemption is about God making us into people we could not be on our own. That God doesn't want you just to run a little bit faster, but to, to, to come back to this metaphor again from Jeremiah 12, God doesn't just want you running faster, he wants you running with horses. He wants you into a life you can never live on your own. And in, in prayer, God deals with us and strengthens us up for that type of life. So God deals with Jeremiah here. He, start, he receives his pain, his hurts. But then he lets Jeremiah know something has to change. And it's in uh, verse, the end of verse 19. Here's what God says to Jeremiah. If you return, I will restore you. You shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious, not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. And this is the key line. They, Israel, shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And what God is saying in that moment is that Jeremiah's life has become so difficult because as he's preached the message God has given him to preach, which Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And therefore all of his friends, his family, his country hate him for it and are speaking against him, calling him a liar, calling him a false prophet. Jeremiah is letting those voices be the loudest in his voice, in his life. And so God says to Jeremiah, stop listening to them. And in particular, what he says in verse 19 is that, Jeremiah, they need your words because you have my words. You're speaking the word of the Lord to them. They need what you have to say, but you do not need what they have to say. That's what he means when he says, they shall turn to you. Jeremiah, they need your words, but you shall not turn to them. Jeremiah, their words are meaningless. Stop listening. Listen to my words. And in prayer, Jeremiah's weakness was confronted. He cared far too much what the voices of other people were saying to him and about him. And that may not be the same for you. That message has landed with me. I need to hear that. But when we pray holding nothing back, it's, it's not just that God's going to welcome our weakness and, and stop there. He's going to confront where we have to change, which is why it's hard to pray. Maybe why it's why we don't pray. I'd rather keep my self-pity, my complaints. I'd rather stay on the floor. I don't want God to scrape me up. And it's worth a question reflecting on for us this morning, which is do you... Do you want to stay stuck in life or do you want to pray? But when, you, when God invites you across the table, when it's time to speak to him, it's going to get real. He will take all of your pain, your hurt. He'll take your honesty. You don't need to hold anything back from him. You can be honest before him and he will receive it. He will take it in. But that's not all he's going to do. He's going to scrape you off the floor. He's going to stand you up. He's going to put breath in your lungs and call you to a courageous life of faith. He's going to take our worst and face it with us and walk through it with us. Which means prayer is not just this place for us to complain to God. Prayer is this place where God's voice becomes most important for us to walk through our pain with him. So hold nothing back in prayer. Because God will take your worst. And thirdly, finally, he will give you, he will give us his best.
Well, let's just contrast the last line of, of God's prayer with the last line of Jeremiah's prayer. The last line of Jeremiah's prayer is, God, will you become to me a deceitful brook? Are you mirage? Have I, have I given my life to you only to get to the stream and find there's no, there's no water? But did, did you hear God's last line to Jeremiah? I will, make you, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. The Gog is Jeremiah's worst, his anger, his accusation, his fear, his loneliness, his pain, and then promises to save Jeremiah and to stand him up and to, to deliver him and to be with him. And that's, that's prayer. Prayer is we come in weakness, independence, and God promises to be with us and to deliver us, to save us. Not necessarily to remove what, what is there harming us or what is there causing us our pain, but he will deliver us in the end. And so where I want to conclude this morning is, is to get a little practical when it comes to prayer. How, how do we, we what, are, what are key practices as we enter into a life, what Jeremiah is doing in prayer? And I want to give us three thoughts um, this morning about prayer and about what we see in Jeremiah. First is that, that his words, God's words, have to have more value than my words. And one of the things I find interesting about Jeremiah 15 is that if you were with us for week one of the Jeremiah series, uh, or, or week two actually, you know that God is actually saying the same things to Jeremiah here. He says back in Jeremiah 1. But go back to Jeremiah 1, you find God's just repeating himself. And one of, I think one of our biggest problems, or at least one of my biggest problems in prayer is that I often pray out of context. I pray opening my mouth to God, forgetting he has already said a lot to me. I'm not the first one speaking. I haven't started this conversation and it's why when you pray, I think one practical help is to always have the scriptures next to you. And in fact, to read the scriptures before you pray. To let God speak first before you go and speak. Because God's already said that the very things he's saying to Jeremiah. He's already promised to make him a fortified wall of bronze. He's already promised to be with him and to deliver him. So do you use the scriptures with your prayer? Do they lead you in your prayer? For example, in my own life, right now I'm in a period of, of waiting so I, I, I resonate with Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, God, are you going to be a deceitful brook? I'm, I'm on my way to the, the spring. God, will, will there be water there? Will my faith in God in the end let me down? Am I, is my hope in something that's not true? And so the week that we found out about Isaiah's diagnosis, um, I was meditating on Psalm 40 that week, and it's become, it's become the prayer of my life, Psalm 40. I love this prayer. I kind of, I've jumbled the ESV and the message to make it my own. It's kind of, this is the Tim Spanberg version, um, the TSV. Um, which sounds, that sounds good. We should do that. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 40, um, I waited and waited and waited on God. At last he looked. Finally he listened. He lifted me out of the, debt, the ditch, pulled me from the deep mud, stood me up on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. The right now I'm in, I'm in verse 1 of Psalm 40. Waiting and waiting and waiting on God. But in Psalm 40, God has given me a prayer, a language, a word, a guide to pray in my time of waiting. That for centuries God has taken his people who have been stuck in mud, in the ditch. And he's, he's delivered them. He's given them new songs. It was true of, of the psalmist from Psalm 40. In 
and I need to keep waiting. And that's what God is doing with Jeremiah here as well. He's saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, remember my word. I've spoken to you on this. I've I've talked to you about what the people are going to do to you. You're going to be a bronze wall. I am with you, Jeremiah, to deliver you. And when we pray rightly, his words are more important than our words, than our feelings, than our thoughts. Our voice is not loudest in prayer. His voice is. And it's why when you pray, the scripture should should be with you in some way. Should be guiding you, leading you. One of the ways we help that practically with you is our open here. Um, if you want to have kind of a, a, a scripture reading alongside our sermon series, we'd love for you to sign up for that. But as you pray, um, the scriptures need to be involved. So that, that's point one. His words are more valuable than my words. Point two um, is, is, is trust takes regularity. Remember that the aim of, of prayer is not to boss God around as our, our waiter, but to learn to trust him, to learn to love him, to grow in personal intimacy with God, and that takes time, time you have to schedule. And so set an alarm on your watch, on your phone, to pray. How that's meant for me, in, in this time when it's, it's hard for me just to go to God and just start praying, um, I have three set times I pray a day. There's a book called The Divine Hours by Phyllis Tickle that, that literally is just kind of psalms collected together to give me language to pray. That if you're someone who sits down and says, I have no idea what even to say or what to pray or what to, to speak to God, that's okay. The, the church has so many resources from the Book of Common Prayer to the Divine Hours to devotionals like My Utmost for His Highest. There's a number of different ways to help lead you into prayer, but it has to be scheduled and it has to be regular. Trust takes regularity, and if you're going to grow in your trust, if the point of prayer is personal intimacy with God, prayer is going to have to be regular. And thirdly and finally, in prayer, hold nothing back. I know I already said this, but I want to say it again. I don't want you to miss the point of of this morning, which is that, that prayer is where we make God's voice most important. That is only going to happen if you put everything on the table with him. Give it to him. Pray it out. Don't put, don't put in front of him what you think he wants to see or what the kind of person you, you want him to, to, to see. In, no, just put, be before him what you are. And I realize all this, all this raises a question, a question I'm asking myself now, which is how can we know that if we put on the, everything on the table with God, if we lay our hearts out to him, that he won't abandon us? That every time we feel that help has been denied, that, 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 that he is not going to enter in to save us in the way he wants, how can we know in the end that if we keep waiting on him, he will lift us up from the ditch eventually? There will be a new song. How can we know? And I would just say, if Jeremiah could know and he could keep praying through his pain, we have even more reason to say and believe that. That Jeremiah, or Jesus was very specific about how you and I are to pray. He said this very, a number of times. He said, when you pray, pray in my name. Ask the Father in my name. Why? Well, early in Jesus' life, he told a woman who had given up on God that, that if she came to Jesus, if she trusted Jesus, then she would never thirst again because Jesus would become living water to her. Jesus promised to her, I'm not a deceitful brook. You come to me and you drink from my well. You will never be thirsty again. And Jesus makes that promise to her, even though knowing Jesus actually is the one who experienced God as a dried up brook. No water, cut off from his father on the cross. On the cross, on the cross he cried out, I thirst. And was denied the water of life, the life he gave all to, all to us so that we could have his living waters. And every time you or I pray in Jesus' name, I am praying in, in, in the name of someone who prayed in anger. 
and loneliness and fear and pain. And when I pray in Jesus' name, I enter into a story, a story where the Son of God had to wait. The Son of God cried out in complaint and did not have his prayer answered. It's a story where Jesus has taken my worst, my sin, my shame, the things I've done and the things that I've done to others. He took every dark thing that's in my life upon himself. He took my worst and I gave his best. His life, his breath, his death and resurrection. So that I could know when I come to God, I can hold nothing back from him. I can fall on my, on my face in weakness before him to pray and to be stood back up. To be given a new song of salvation for he is with me to save and deliver me. Let's pray. God, we come to you now not as a God who can or is going to solve our problems. We don't know. We come to you as a God who, like Jeremiah, there have been times, God, it's felt to you like we, you are a deceitful brook, like you're not going to come through for us. And at the same time, we come to you as a God who gave his son for us. So as we sing and as we worship, as we pray now, God, would you help us to step into the life of prayer and make your voice most important, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one thing we're going to do right now is, is actually pray out prayers of lament together um, to give you space to pray, maybe prayers you haven't prayed before, prayers that are in the scriptures, guides for how to pray. And so what we're going to do is, is we'll sing a little bit, we'll pray a corporate prayer of lament together, give you space to think out and pray out those things in your own words. And then hear a word of assurance, the, the Lord or Jesus speaking over you, an answer to that prayer of lament. So um, use this time to worship, to pray, um, as Jeremiah prayed.
Well, one of the primary ways that we hear um, God's voice is through communion. He's the one who invites us to this meal, and even though it's, it's a fellow believer speaking the words of institution over you each week, this is the Lord who's invited you to his table uh, to be with him in intimacy. Um, and so we practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of our church uh, to receive this meal, but come in groups of four to six. Take the bread, dip it in the juice, and eat it together at the instruction of those who are serving you. If you need a gluten-free option, it's available on this side. Um, but before we go, I want to read Jesus' invitation to you, to me, to this meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave thanks, and take, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As you're ready, come, receive this meal.
Amen. Well, it's good uh, to be with you, with us um, uh, together this morning. And uh, as our benediction, I wanted to go to, uh, to Isaiah 55, which is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It also speaks to everything we spoke about um, this morning. But first reminder, on your way out, grab an advice and a Thanksgiving bag or sign up for the, the Thanksgiving meal coming up uh, here in, in mid-November. We'd love to have, have your help um, with that as we, we engage and serve um, advice and aid. Um, so with that, if you're, uh, if you're comfortable, um, raise your hand to receive this benediction. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Go in the peace of our Lord.
Well, good morning. 
Thank you. Welcome. It's good to be together this morning uh, on a crisp fall morning. If you are new with us uh, this morning, a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you have chosen to spend your Sunday here. And if you need anything at all, uh, the folks with the blue lanyards and badges would be more than happy to help in any way they can. We've also got some gift bags on a table in the lobby. Those are for you to, to grab on your way out, just a way for us to say thanks for being here uh, this morning. Most of you know the drill, but there are clipboards at the end of the rows. If you want to grab those, fill those out and pass them down the row. It's a way for us to care for you. Uh, there are some, some prayer cards behind the sign-in sheet. So if you've got something that you would like uh, prayer for um, this week, we will, we will read those and pray for you uh, as a staff throughout this upcoming week. And you can just hand those to us after the service. Or you can drop them in, in the box that's on the back table. And that is the offering and gifts box. So if you've come prepared to worship this morning through giving, you can use that box to do so. It is almost November, so the November monthly updates, hopefully you got one or they're back on the table. You can grab one on your way out. There's a lot, a lot to highlight uh, this morning by way of announcement. Just a couple things that I want to say here uh, is in two weeks, we have our next newcomer coffee. So, that, so if, you, uh, if you do consider yourself new to Christ community and, and have questions or just want to meet some other new folks and have uh, a breakfast and coffee uh, you can do that in a couple weeks, um, November 12th, in the room just right across uh, the hall here. During this service, uh, there will be someone, some uh, folks there leading a newcomer coffee, so do mark your calendar for that. Um, also, a couple ways that we're partnering with Advice and Aid for the, for the Thanksgiving season. Uh, one is, we've done this the last two or three years, is they have uh, their, their Thanksgiving grocery bags that, we, uh, that you take with you, fill up, and bring back here, and so those bags are on the table, just on the table along this wall. If you want to grab one of those bags and sign your name uh, on the sign-up sheet telling us that you took one, uh, the directions are painfully obvious, so just follow the directions, fill up the bag, bring it back uh, either next week or the week after that, um, and that's a, a really great way that advice and aid helps serve uh, our community, and then also we are going to provide the Thanksgiving meal for advice and aid's uh, bridges program, so young moms, young families, uh, 60 to 65 uh, is what we'll, we will feed that evening, so that's November 16th, uh, 6 p.m., so if you're interested in helping provide a meal for that, there's a sign-up sheet on the same table right over there. Uh, one is groceries, one is a hot dish, or you can come and help serve, uh, but both ways that we are partnering with Advice and Aid this Thanksgiving season. Then lastly, um, there's an event. This is, a, this is like a mark your calendar for February. I know there's like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's all between now and then. But mark your calendar for February 2nd and 3rd. There's a, uh, Jen Wilkin will be with us uh, with, for, for the weekend. Two separate events. One is a women's night on Friday night. One is a parent's event on Saturday morning. That's uh, all parent, anyone that works with, uh, with young people, if you're interested in learning how to serve our young people uh, better, you should, you should mark your calendar for that event. There will be more coming. This is just a, an initial save the date um, for Jen Wilkin, who will be with us in a couple months. That is it for things I'm going to say from the stage. There's a lot more that you could read in here. But go ahead and stand as we continue to worship through the reading and hearing of God's word. Um, this morning's passage comes from Jeremiah chapter 15, 
um, verses 15 through 21, and reads this way. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, well, good morning as well. My name is Tim, and I serve as one of the pastors here. We're really glad to have you um, with us uh, this morning. And before we jump into, uh, into the sermon, into Jeremiah 15, we just wanted to give you a little bit of an update um, just on children's ministry programming and some changes that will be coming um, next week. That's, uh, one of the things that I heard a lot when we moved from Maranatha to Trail Ridge um, was, was even though we were excited to leave the, uh, how cold that gym was, like just think it'd be like 58 in there today because um, how cold it was outside. Just enjoy this warmth. Remember that. Um, but one of the great things about that space was how the kids and adults interacted with one another after service and, you know, threw balls around and parents talked to kids, kids talked to parents, that sort of thing. And it was, it was really great. And a lot of people when we moved here pointed out how it was different um, here. And, and one of the reasons why it was different here is when we moved to Trail Ridge, we were able to, or, or pushed really hard to provide more children's ministry program. Whereas when we started, we just did uh, uh, programming through elementary and first service and then up kind of through, through nursery and second service. Uh, when we moved here, we started doing children's ministry uh, all the way through elementary in, <clears throat> in both services. And so it wasn't just that, uh, that we didn't have the gym for kids to play anymore, but, but really kids were now almost all exclusively in, in children's ministry. And I noticed that uh, uh, pretty significantly when we started uh, doing second services, that there weren't kids um, in the service any, anymore. And so as we thought about just how we wanna, how, who we want to be, how we want to be as, as a church, um, we miss that intergenerational um, piece. And for us, the most important thing for us with kids in our, our church um, it's not that they love uh, love the church. That's what that's what the donuts are, uh, holes are for. That's how we buy them off that way. Um, but it's that that the kids who are part of our congregation are are Christians when they're eighteen and they're nineteen, they're twenty, they're twenty one. That's what's most important to us. And studies have shown the two most important things to make that happen are are one that the parents are paying an active role in spiritual formation of their kids. They're the lead spiritual form um, formers of their children. Not me. Um, I only see your kids. Uh, very, uh, very rarely, or Laura as well. And then secondly, that uh, your kids know and are part of the broader congregation. And in particular, they know five adults who know their name for no reason other than uh, they're just adults who want to pour into your lives, um, kids. And so recognizing that reality, that we had moved away from that reality, and also the fact that I think uh, we're tr- we were just trying to, to do too much, um, 
as a church. I think we forget how that we're a small church, a new church, even though we're part of, of a, a broader congregation. And we realize we actually do more children's ministry than our Brookside campus, uh, who, has, um, who has a building and also has a child to adult ratio that's normal. Whereas for us, it's like we have like, I think, 237 kids for every one adult that comes to our, I think that's how that works, something like that. Um, no, our, our adult ratio to child is very difficult um, um, for a, any church, let alone a mobile new church. And so sitting around as a staff, we realized, you know, we can keep running this hard and doing all things okay, or we can focus on doing a couple of things excellent. And that's what we decided to do. So um, starting next week, our, our focus in children's ministry programming is going to be first service, where we'll do um, birth through, uh, through elementary uh, first service, and then second service, uh, we're going to do uh, birth through five years old, so um, um, basically birth through kindergarten um, or through preschool uh, in, in second service, and encourage parents uh, to do what we did in the beginning of our church, which is to, to make that a family service, to worship um, together. Um, that One of the things we've noticed is we have a five-year-old who we've now started having in worship service every week. My son asked my wife to, to read the words of institution, communion, before the communion moment, and that... That's what we want, that we want those moments. And when, uh, when parents are always separate from their kids um, during church, those moments uh, can't happen um, as often. Plus, just realistically, from a, a church plant size, uh, how can we run at a pace that, that gets us in for the long haul and not wears us out after a few years? Um, and so that's what will happen starting next week. And the primary thing we're asking of you, especially if you're a younger um, um, family, is to consider uh, being um, a two-service family. The, one of the things about how we think about discipleship at Christ Community is we don't like uh, a ton of programming. We don't like having things every night of the week for you to, to wear your family out. But we want to focus on Sunday mornings very intentionally. And so Sunday mornings, what we would love to see everyone do is serve one service um, um, in any way, whether it's greeting or hospitality. Uh, we ran out of coffee earlier. We're good, na- good to go now, but we need help making coffee because um, that's a sin. To not, that's what I confessed. To not confess. It's like, God, forgive me for not having coffee for people. That was bad. Um, and God forgave me. It was okay. But, uh, but we need help all over the place. And, and, and so come and serve one service and then worship together um, as your rhythm makes possible um, as a family together in second service. And, and with that, I want to say a thank you to the volunteers. One of the primary ways we've grown as a church is through children's ministry. It's why we feel that pinch and why it's difficult for us to provide so much children's ministry. Um, each service is because we'll get anywhere from 50 to 60 kids on a Sunday morning, which is about half of what our adult attendance will be. It's just hard to make those numbers work at any place, let alone a place where you're, uh, you're in a building you don't own. And so thank you to our volunteers who have done such a great job and welcome new families into our church. Um, I'm grateful to have you with us and grateful for, for what will happen next week when we'll see more kids um, as a part of this service. That's the design. That's the hope um, moving forward. So that, that's the update on children's ministry. With that, I want to pray for us and, and then jump into Jeremiah 15 and, and the sermon for this morning. So let's pray. God, we thank you that... Um, you are God who wants us to pray and to speak to you. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah laid his heart out before you. So God, we want to be people who pray and learn how to pray and know how to pray. And so would you, would you show us this morning? Teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whose voice would you say is most important to you? The who, if your life was unraveling, would you, would you give a call to? Or if you're the more personal type, who, if, if you needed help, would you invite to dinner, sit down at the table across from, and, and pour your heart out to whose voice is most important to you? Is it the, the voice of, of another person, or the voice of other people? That what drives your life or what you see or how you live is what, what other people say to you, what other people think of you? 
Or is your own voice the most important voice in your life? That if you were to sit down uh, to dinner with the most important person and the most important voice to you, would there actually be no one across the table from you? Would it just be you and your thoughts, thinking it out, talking it out, struggling it out? Whose voice is most important to you? Others? Yours? Or is it God's voice? Is God's voice most important to you? And I know I just pulled a lame pastor move there with uh, pulling the God card out. And, and we all know what the right answer is, right? Of course, God's voice should be the most important to us. But the reality is, at least in my own life, it, it often isn't. The voice of other people become loud. The voice of, of my, myself, my own voice, begins to, to doubt or to question and to wonder. And so the question I want to wrestle with this morning through Jeremiah's prayer is, how do we, how do we make God's voice most important? And to answer that question, and we'll spend the morning unpacking this, this answer through Jeremiah's sermon, is that prayer is how we make God's voice most important. And if you want to know anything about how important God's voice is to you, look at your prayer life. And if you look at Jeremiah's prayer life, you'd see that. You'd see also he's wrestling through the, the very questions we're wrestling with, which is what, whose voice is most important so meditating on Jeremiah's prayer this week and God's response to Jeremiah's prayer, I want to I ask this question. Whose voice is most important to me? How do I make God's voice most important to me? And if we ask, answer that question through the lens of prayer, if prayer is where God's voice becomes most important to me, then when I pray, when I really pray, um, three things are going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to hold anything back. God is going to take my worst, and he's going to give me his best. Sounds like a good sermon. I'm going to preach it, so let's start. First, uh, prayer where God's voice is most important means I hold nothing back. Now, remember, what our, kind of our big idea for this series is that Jeremiah has been given a life that he cannot live. And, and I can just about promise you that, that if, if you live long enough, there's going to be a moment in your life when God puts something into your life that you do not want to live, you do not want to experience, you do not want to be true, um, for you. So Jeremiah's response to this is to pray, and he prays, um, he prays a lot. He prays many times through the book of Jeremiah. He wrote the book of Lamentations, most likely, which is a list of prayers that Jeremiah prayed. And so a number of, of different times, Jeremiah, uh, he reaches a breaking point, and there are lots of different voices telling him what to do, what to think, how to process his life. His own voice becomes a loud voice in his processing People want to harm him. People want to kill him, persecute him. And so God, Jeremiah, what he does is he prays. He puts God in a chair across from him, and he prays, and he holds nothing back. And I can promise you that if, if you live long enough and you're given something that, that you don't want, you're going to want to pray some of the things Jeremiah prays. And so I, always, I just want to walk through his prayer, what he prays out. He prays out his fear his loneliness, his pain, and his anger. And so I want to look at each just briefly in, in time. The first, Jeremiah prays out um, his fear. That look at, listen again to verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Jeremiah has people who are threatening his life, and so he asks God, take vengeance on them, like, 
Protect me. Save me. Remember, Jeremiah has been given a message to preach his entire life, which is to say to Jerusalem that the city is soon going to be destroyed. And the result is that everyone who lived in, in Jerusalem, Jeremiah's family, his friends, the people whom he spent his time with, want to kill him, want to persecute him, want to hurt him because of what he's saying. So Jeremiah prays out to God, God, listen, I'm, I'm saying what you're telling me to say, and therefore will you protect me against the people who want to kill me because I'm saying what you want me to say. He's afraid. God, I'm in danger. Help me. Don't be so patient with the people who want to hurt me that you forget about me. He prays his fear, one. But second, he prays his loneliness. Verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. And what Jeremiah prays there is that because he had been given this, this role as a prophet, he, uh, God had told him he could not marry. He was given a message that was confrontational to the people around him, which meant they did not like him. And so Jeremiah says, God, I sit alone because your hand is on me. God, you're, you're all I have. I'm alone. And I'm afraid. I'm in danger. I'm alone. Everyone else gets to live how they want, gets to be the company of revelers, laugh it up, have, have the life that they want. Jeremiah doesn't get to live that. He's alone. He prays out his loneliness. Third thing he prays out in verse 18 is, is, is his pain. I love the way the message translate, translates this. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates verse 18, but why? Why this chronic pain, this ever-worsening wound, and no healing in sight? But Jeremiah says to God, God, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm bleeding out. Will you step in and heal me? I'm breaking down. And the entire prayer, which has been really a climax to the last question, the last thing Jeremiah prays out to God is his, his anger in verse 18, where Jeremiah says to God, You're nothing, O God, but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance, and then nothing. Now, what he prays to God in that moment is, God, I... I am in the desert, and I'm thirsty. And then I, I, I go off, and I see a, a stream off in the distance, water, it looks like. And it's you, God. And then I go, and I make the trek, and I get thirstier and more tired and more worn out, and I get to the stream, and it's dry. You're not there, nothing. It's a brutal prayer. And I would just ask, have you ever prayed anything like that to God? Because I know you've thought it. Have you prayed it? Now, I've been in, in church long enough to know, at least for whatever reason, in our cultural context, we struggle to pray these prayers. We struggle to pray this honestly. That I have, I've, I've rarely ever heard a Christian pray like this. And I wondered why this week. And I want to I unpack a few reasons in light of Jeremiah's um, prayer that, that I think this is hard for us. I think it's hard for anyone, but I think it's especially hard in our context. And so three reasons why I think it's hard for us to pray like this. The first is that we misunderstand prayer. I think our culture has a hard time understanding what prayer is actually for. And so to go back for a minute to the metaphor of, of whose voice is most important to you. And if you were to sit down at dinner with someone and to sit across from someone, you know, who's, who would that be? Whose voice would that be? Who would you sit down with dinner to lay out your heart's troubles 
And, and Eugene Peterson says often what we do is we don't put God in that table across from us. We actually we make God the waiter in the, the proposition. So he writes this. The, this waiter God is essential but peripheral. You can have dinner without him, but he is, uh, you, can, you can't have dinner without him, but he is not an intimate participant in it. He is someone to whom you give orders, make complaints, and maybe at the end give thanks. <clears throat> I can't speak for you, but for me, one of the biggest problems with prayer for me is that I see it primarily as transactional. I pray for something, and I was told this growing up. This is how I was taught about prayer in the church growing up. You pray for something, and God has three answers, yes, no, or wait. And listen, that's certainly an aspect to prayer, but that reduces God down to being a waiter with whom we throw out commands or expectations, and he gives us his response. And that's not, that is a part of prayer, as Peterson says. It's a part of what Jeremiah is doing here, but that is not the intent. That's not the design of prayer. Prayer is not about a transaction. Prayer is about a relationship, about going to God to be with God, to make his voice most important. God is not, is not the waiter. He's to be the one who is across the table from us. The one we need to hear from, listen to, be with. And as long as we, we misunderstand prayer, we make it transactional. When we think of God like a waiter, God, we will never pray holding nothing back. You don't, you don't spill out your heart to the waiter. At least I hope you don't. You don't, you don't lay out your troubles. You don't hold nothing back from the waiter. That's, that's for your, your dinner companion. That's for your friend. And that's where God needs to be with us. And I think the reason why it feels weird for us to pray to God like this is we think of God more as our waiter than as the person to whom we are to be with in prayer. I think that's one reason why prayer is, is hard. A second is that we, we're afraid to be real. And I've repeatedly come back to this line to encourage my own soul from C.S. Lewis, who says that we, when we pray, we, ought, we must lay before God, before him, what is in us. Not what ought to be in us. And the reality is, you and I, we're really good at showing other people what, they, what we want them to see, what we think they ought to see, what we hope they will see. But when it comes to God, um, oftentimes we keep up the act with Him. And we, we, we lay before God what, he, what we, we think He wants to see in us, what we think He wants us to think or hope or, or say. And the reality is, nothing undermines a personal relationship like like dishonesty or like trying to present an image to someone else. And the real problem is with God, unlike other human beings uh, who can fall for our act from time to time, God sees past it always. You cannot sanitize yourself before God. You cannot present an image of what you want God to see to him because everything you've already thought, believed, or, or, or wrestled with, God has already seen that in you. So put it on the table with him. Be honest. Hold nothing back. And yet, the reason that's hard is not just because we, we misunderstand prayer or because it's hard for us to be real before God, but mostly real prayer hurts. That if we come to God with our pain and with our loneliness, with our fear and with our anger, oftentimes what happens is nothing. Silence. Now, what have you in your own life prayed for and, and nothing? I met my first uh, atheist in first grade at the first grade lunch table, and, and I'd grown up in church, so like I remember this very vividly, the first person declaring to me that they did not believe in God, and the fact that it was a first grader, and she was so adamant about it. So I asked her, her name was Ashley, Ashley, well, how do you not believe in God? Like, everybody believes in, in God, and, and she was very clear about her reasons. She 
um, said, I cannot believe in God because I prayed for a long time for the video game Paperboy, and God never gave it to me, so there is no God. And that was an argument, and I felt the weight um, of that argument as a first grader. Although in hindsight, like Paperboy, like I think about those video games and like the video games now, like our video games when I was a kid was like a, kid, like a real job, like a kid who got a paper and tried to throw it into a mailbox or a front porch without hitting, uh, breaking a window. Like that was, that was fun for us. You ever think about how pathetic we were? Like that just sounds sad to me when I think about it. But like in first grade, that was a really compelling argument. Like why wouldn't God want to give the gift of Paperboy to someone? This seems, um, this seems obvious and and why would God deny that hope? I remember first grade. I'm, that was a powerful argument to me. And at 34 um, years old now, the stakes are higher. And her argument is more powerful than it was to me in a first grade lunch table. Now for me today, I'm not praying for some light entertainment. I'm, I'm praying for a child. I'm not praying for entertainment. I'm praying to be saved from the awful consequences of death. And I know all of your prayers that are not about some video game, but they are life and death prayers, and God isn't saying much. The real prayer hurts. And Francis Bufford, reflecting on this reality, points out, this is why, it's actually, I think it's harder to be a Christian than it is to be an atheist. I think it's easier just to say, you know what, I'm, just, I'm leaving the table, I'm not going to pray anymore, there's no God. It's, it's easier to do that than it is to keep coming back to the table again and again and again, when it seems like God again and again and again denies help. And so Francis Bufford, he says this about this reality in prayer, and there's a, there's a curse word in the original quote. I'm not going to say it, uh, just to be family, family worship, right? Uh, I'm not going to say it, but just so you know it's there, and if you look this up, it's going to be there, so you're not surprised. Um, but he's quoting an atheist who, who doesn't just not believe in God. He doesn't believe in God with anger because he's prayed for help, and God hasn't, hasn't been there. Here's what Spufford writes. He says, you ask for help, and you get nothing. On a conscious level, you may have decided there was nobody there to help, but less consciously, since you did ask, it feels as if help was denied. Hence the angry edge that, that some um, sometimes sharpens disbelief when it's been renewed by one of those episodes of fruitless asking. In the words of Samuel Beckett, he doesn't exist, the expletive. The life of faith has just as many moments, probably more of them. If anything, given that believers tend to return to the subject more often, producing many more opportunities to be disappointed. That real prayer hurts because in prayer you go again and again to the one who is denying you for help. And it's why, like, if, if I had to choose between sitting across from an atheist and arguing about the existence of God and the problem of evil, I, that's easier than sitting in front of a God and asking him to intervene into the evil of this world I experience. That's why Eugene Peterson, writing on the life of Jeremiah, says this, says, believers argue with God, skeptics argue with each other. Which is why, if you go to the Bible, you won't find a powerful philosophical argument for God in light of the existence of evil. What you find is people praying out the problem of evil to God. And so you will not find an atheist who has written anything that someone in the Bible has not first prayed out to God. And it's far easier to do that, to talk about God, to talk around God, than to go to God. 
And it's also why prayer is actually, it's a very dangerous thing. And if we're not honest about what it is, and we're not honest about what, what prayer is supposed to be, and we misunderstand prayer, and we misappropriate prayer, which I think the church in this culture has largely done, prayer becomes a, a dangerous thing. Because if we think God is our waiter God, with whom we go and make requests to, and the expectation is he brings us good service, and if we think prayer is going to resolve the tension of our life, we're going, prayer is going to devastate us. Because in prayer, we take everything we care most about, the people we, we love most, the things that are most important to us, we put it all on the table before God. And if we think his job is to do something about all of that, and that's the primary aim of prayer, prayer is going to harm us. But if we understand prayer is primarily about a relationship, about intimacy with God, then we understand we don't put these things on the table so that we get the desired solution we hope we can come to. We realize we put these things on the table to walk with a God through the worst. And so the question for us this morning is, can you pray holding nothing back? Can you enter into the pain of real prayer? Can you pray again and again and again for something God may never do? Knowing that the reason you're going is not to get God to, to respond to your request. The reason you are going is to get God. Because in prayer, we make God's voice most important. We put all the other voices away and we listen to His. So one prayer, if it's to be a place where God's voice is most important, it has to be a place where we hold nothing back, one. But secondly, prayer is a place where God takes my worst. <clears throat> Jeremiah, he's held nothing back. He's accused God of being a deceitful mirage, an oasis in the desert with no water, like a fraud, essentially. And so now it's time for God to respond. And Jeremiah said a hard thing here. He actually will say harder things later. But God's initial response to Jeremiah, it's not how dare you, or what were you thinking, or how terrible are you? No, God's initial response to Jeremiah is, is this, verse 19. If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. And what God says to Jeremiah there is, Jeremiah, if you, if you won't give up on me, I haven't given up on you. And he invites him to stand into a place of restoration, to get up off the floor, into a place of healing, away from pain. So I'm going to say this again and again this morning. If you hear anything this morning from me, I hope you will be someone who prays with honesty, who holds nothing back from God, who will tell God what you're thinking. Because he can take it. And yet that's not all God says to Jeremiah. And if I was to add a fourth reason why this type of prayer is hard, it's because I know once I put it all on the table with God, he's not, he's not just going to build a fortress of self-pity with me and let me live there. With him. That's not how it's not how it's gonna go. He's gonna stand me up, right? That's what he says to Jeremiah. If you return to me, I'll restore you and stand you back up. Now remember the whole point of this, this series, what we've been trying to say about salvation, about life with God, that salvation is about equipping us to, to become people and to live a life we could not live without God. It's about life being too big for us and, and us not having the resources adequate to live into the life God calls us to. It's about God putting things in our life that we could not possibly live on our own. And, and God's answer to that, or God's response to that, is not for us to live as slightly nicer people, or to, to use the metaphor of running, to run slightly faster. No, that what God wants to do in us, the metaphor we've gone back to each week, Jeremiah 12, is that we would be people who run with horses. Right? Not that we'd run a little faster, be a little nicer. No, we would, we would enter into a quality of life that's only possible with God. That's what salvation is. 
And so God is going to do that with Jeremiah now. He's going to stand him up. He's going to deal with Jeremiah. He's going to take his worst. He's going to receive it. But then he's going to let Jeremiah know that something has to change. And so in verse 19, God finishes his first verse to Jeremiah by saying to Jeremiah, They, Israel, they shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. What you have to remember is Jeremiah's life is hard is because he's been told to preach a message to Jerusalem that is, your city's going to be destroyed, you have to repent, you're all sinners, it's going to fall apart if you don't turn back to God. And the result was that meant everybody hated Jeremiah. They they said bad things about him, they persecuted him, they called him a false uh, prophet. And so Jeremiah has all of these voices coming after him day after day. And so what God says to Jeremiah here is, is essentially stop listening to them. They shall turn to you. They need your voice, Jeremiah. You have the word of God. They need your voice, but you don't need their voice. They're empty. They have nothing to say. Quit listening to them, Jeremiah. If you want to stand up and enter into the life of salvation, their voice cannot matter to you. Their voice is being drowned out by my judgment. Stop listening. And so in in prayer, Jeremiah's weakness is confronted. He cares too much about what other people are saying to him and about him. And if you pray, honestly, if you pray holding nothing back, God is going to do the same thing with you, which is maybe why I don't pray. I'd rather keep my self-pity. I'd rather just keep my complaints to myself. I don't want God to scrape me off the floor. I just want want him to leave me alone, let me stay on the floor in my sadness or my bitterness. And it's worth a question I've been asking myself this week, which is do... Do we want to stay stuck in life, or do we want to pray? Because when you invite God across from the table and you lay out your pain, your hurt, your anger, your frustration, your loneliness, He will take all of it. You don't have to curate your prayers for Him. You don't have to hold things back from Him. He will take all of it, and He'll still want to be with you. But He's also going to scrape you off the floor. He wants to stand you up. He wants to put breath in your lungs and call you to a life of courage, a life of faith, a life that only you could live with him. It's a life of walking with God through the worst of life, not removing you from all of the worst of life. And so prayer, it's not, it's not just a place where we complain to God and hold nothing back. Prayer is where, where we make God's voice most important and we let his voice stand us up, save us, and move us into a place of courage. So a life of, of prayer, it holds nothing back. It gives God our worst. And lastly, in prayer, God gives me his best. Let's just contrast the last line of Jeremiah's prayer with the last line of God's answer. At Jeremiah ends, will you be to me a deceitful brook like waters that fail? And God's last word to Jeremiah is, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you. But they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. And if you were with us in week two, you know God already said those exact things to Jeremiah back in Jeremiah 1. And so in light of that, because I I want this to get practical, as you think about how to pray and in your prayers, what do we do? How do we enter into this life of prayer? And what does it look like for God to take my worst and for me to get his best? I want to give you three three thoughts this morning. First, if you're going to keep praying, and you're going to keep praying honestly, you have to understand his word has more value than my words, than your words. What I find interesting is God just says the same thing to Jeremiah he's already said back in Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah, I'm going to make you a bronze wall. I'm with you to deliver you. He said all those things back 
at the beginning of Jeremiah's life. And it's why when you pray, the Word of God should always be right next to you. The Scriptures should help lead you in your prayers. I think when I, when I make mistakes about praying, I, what I do is I think I, I start the conversation. And my word's the most important. And God needs to hear from me. And what's happening here is, is God is telling Jeremiah, remember what I've already told you. His words have more value than my words. And I promise you, if you get into the scriptures, they will be a guide for you to prayer. That In my own life, uh, the, at, the, at the moment of, of most difficulty for me, um, I was meditating on, on Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 has become the prayer, my prayer guide to life right now. And I love, I, I sort of, I've jumbled the message in the ESV and the Hebrew and all that into to kind of my own translation of, of Psalm um, 40. And here's how I translate those verses. This has become my prayer. A prayer already prayed hundreds of thousands of years ago. Already prayed has become my, my prayer now. I waited and waited and waited on God. At last he looked. Finally he listened. He lifted me up out of the ditch, pulled me from the deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And I'm in verse 1 right now. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting on God. <clears throat> but in Psalm 40, I have, I have God's word, which is more important than my word, which is, is someone who prayed in the same place I prayed. They were stuck in a ditch. They were stuck in the mud. They needed delivered. And one day God showed up and gave them a new song. And so that is my prayer. A new song is coming for me. Not, but not yet. Not today. Today's waiting. Today's verse 1. Today's the mud. And so in this, in God's word, I have a prayer to pray, to lead me. And that's what God is doing with Jeremiah here. He's like, Jeremiah, go back to the beginning of your life and pray that. Pray I'm with you to deliver you. And so in prayer, um, be with the scriptures. Read the scriptures before you pray. If you need help, we, we do open here, which is a reading plan along our scriptures. Um, pick, pick a gospel, read the scriptures, and then let that guide you and lead you into prayer. Let God speak first across the table, and then, and then you speak. So that's one. Uh, if you're going to pray um, um, with honesty, or if, if you're going to pray, you need to understand his, his words have more value than your words. Secondly is trust takes regularity. Now remember, the aim, of, the aim of prayer is not to make God into your waiter who he will do things for you, but it's to grow in intimacy with God. And so this takes time, and time you have to schedule. And I don't know what it looks like for you. I'll tell you what it looks like for me. I have three alarms on my, my watch. One of them just went off during the sermon. Um, um, and, and so I pray three times a day, um, generally around 6 at 11 and late at, at night. And, and because I'm even in a, a phase when it's just hard to know what to say to God, I, there's a, a resource called The Divine Hours by Phyllis Tickle that is guided prayers through the Psalms. I'd love to share that with you. Um, Tim Keller also has a book on praying through the Psalms, which, which would go along well with point one about starting with the scriptures and then leading in to prayer. But you have to schedule it. And, and you're not just going to pray, pray continually or just pray on the spot. You're just going to forget. And you need that time of intimacy. You need to put God in the table across from you and speak. Trust takes regularity. And thirdly, I'm just going to say this again because I don't want you to miss this. Uh, hold nothing back. The prayer is where you make God's voice most important. And that will only happen if you're willing to put everything on the table with him. Hold nothing back. Pray it out. But all this raises a question. It goes back to when I said real, real prayer is hurt, right? You get hurt by God. He doesn't respond. There's silence. So how do we keep praying? 
right? How can I know that if I put everything on the table with God and I come to him in vulnerability, in the end, he's not going to just abandon me, that in the end, there will be a new song of salvation for me from my time of waiting. How do I know that God is not a deceitful brook, that I will not put my life of faith into him and then get to the waters and find there's nothing there? How can we know that? Let me just say, if Jeremiah had every reason to believe he could go to God, you and I have more as Christians. Because Jesus, on several times, said, if you are a Christian, you need to pray in my name. You need to ask the Father in my name. And that changes everything because early in Jesus' life, he was with a woman who had given up on God, had no interest. And Jesus made a promise to her. He said to her, if you come to me and you drink from my well, you drink from my water, you will never thirst again. And Jesus, though, later in his life, when he's on the cross, he cries out, I thirst. And the reason you and I, we can go to God and pray in Jesus' name, knowing there will be an answer, there will be water at the end of this road at some point, is because Jesus didn't get the water. Right? The water was taken from him. He thirsted. God gave him all of our worst, right? Our sin and our shame, the things we've done, the things that have been done to us. He took all of our darkness on the cross for himself and thirsted. Experience the deceitful, dried-up brooks so that you and I would never have to. So that you and I could know Jesus is a, a well of water springing up into eternal life for us. So we can go to him and pray, hold nothing back. Give him our worst and we get his best, his life, his death, his resurrection. To stand us up. Give us courage to know he is with us to deliver us. Let's pray. God, as we reflect on Jesus, who told us to pray and pray to you in his name, we pray to you now in his name. God, for those of us who are broken and suffering, would you, would you be near to us in this time? God, would you give us the freedom to pray honestly before you? to pray with courage, God, to pray honestly. And Lord, would you help us not be overwhelmed and not be discouraged and disappointed by the silence, but help us to keep coming, knowing that, that Jesus got the silence, he got the thirst, so we could know that one day your voice will be answered, or our voice will have an answer, God. Fill us with faith to believe that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways we want to we want to help teach you how to pray this way is actually to pray these prayers together. And so, um, what we're going to do now is is kind of along with some singing, pray out a prayer of lament that's in the scriptures, that's that's in our guide to how we are to pray. To pray that corporately together, to leave some space for silence, and then to hear a word from um, from Jesus to speak over our prayers of um, lament. And so, we invite you pray those prayers with us and enter into this time of worship where you hold nothing back before our God.